Part ten of Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Volume two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Aristides, Part Three. After this cavalry battle, both sides refrained from further fighting for a long time, since only as they acted on the defensive would victory be theirs, so the soothsayers interpreted the sacrifices alike for Persians and Hellenes, but if they attacked, defeat. At last Mardonius, since he had supplies remaining for only a few days, and since the Hellenes were ever increasing in number as fresh bodies joined them, impatiently determined to wait no longer, but to cross the Asopus at daybreak and attack the Athenians unexpectedly. During the evening he gave the watchword to his commanders. But about midnight a solitary horseman quietly approached the camp of the Hellenes, and falling in with the outposts, ordered that Aristides the Athenian come to him. He was speedily obeyed, and then said, I am Alexander the Macedonian, and I am come at the greatest peril to myself, out of my good will toward you, that no suddenness of attack may frighten you into inferior fighting. Mardonius will surely give battle on the morrow, not because he has substantial hope or even courage, but because he is destitute of provisions. His soothsayers indeed are trying to keep him from battle by unpropitious sacrifices and oracular utterances, while his army is full of dejection and consternation, but he must needs boldly try his fortune or sit still and endure extremist destitution. When he had told him this, Alexander begged Aristides to keep the knowledge to himself, and bear it well in mind, but to tell it to none other. Aristides replied that it was not honourable to conceal this knowledge from Pausanias, since it was on him that the supreme command devolved but that it should not be told the other leaders before the battle, though in case Hellas were victorious, no man should remain ignorant of Alexander's zeal and valour. After this conversation, the king of the Macedonians rode off back again, and Aristides went to the tent of Pausanias and told him all that had been said. Then they summoned the other leaders, and gave them orders to keep the army in array, since there was to be a battle. At this juncture, as Herodotus relates, Pausanias sent word to Aristides, demanding that the Athenians change their position, and array themselves on the right wing over against the Persians, where they would contend better, he said, since they were versed already in the Persian style of fighting, and emboldened by a previous victory over them. The left wing, where the Medizing Hellenes were going to attack, should be entrusted to himself and his Spartans. 
the rest of the Athenian generals thought it inconsiderate and annoying in Pausanias to leave the rest of his line in the position assigned, while he moved them, and them only, back and forth like helots, and put them forward where the fighting was to be hottest. But Aristides declared that they were utterly wrong. They had contended emulously with the Tegeans but a little while back, for the occupation of the left wing, and plumed themselves on being preferred before those rivals. But now, when the Lacedaemonians of their own accord vacated the right wing for them, and after a fashion proffered them the leadership among the Hellenes, they neither welcomed the reputation thus to be won, nor counted it gain that their contention would thus be not with men of the same tribes and kindreds, but rather with barbarians and natural enemies. Upon this the Athenians very willingly exchanged posts with the Spartans, and the word passed from lip to lip far through their ranks that their enemies would attack them with no better arms and with no braver spirits than at Marathon, nay with the same kind of archery as then and with the same variegated vesture and gold adornments to cover soft bodies and unmanly spirits while we have not only like arms and bodies with our brethren of that day but that greater courage which is born of our victories and our contest is not alone for land and city as theirs was but also for the trophies which they set up at Marathon and Salamis, in order that the world may think that not even those were due to Miltiades only, or to fortune, but to the Athenians. The Spartans and Athenians, then, were busily engaged in exchanging posts, but the Thebans heard of it from deserters, and told Mardonius. He at once, whether through fear of the Athenians, or out of ambition to engage with the Lacedaemonians, counterchanged his Persians to the right wing, and ordered the Hellenes with him to set themselves against the Athenians. When this change in his enemy's order of battle was manifest, Pausanias returned and occupied the right wing again, whereupon Mardonius also resumed his own left wing, just as he stood at the beginning facing the Lacedaemonians. And thus the day came to an end without action. The Hellenes, on deliberation, decided to change their camp to a position farther on, and to secure a spot where there was plenty of good water, since the neighbouring springs were defiled and ruined by the barbarians' superior force of captivity. Night came on, and the generals set out to lead their forces to the appointed encampment. The soldiers, however, showed no great eagerness to follow in close order, but when they had once abandoned their first defences, most of them hurried on toward the city of Plataea, and their tumult reigned as they scattered about and encamped in no order whatsoever. But it chanced that the Lacedaemonians were left alone behind the others, and that too against their will. For Amomphoretus, a man of a fierce and venturesome spirit, who had long been mad for battle and distressed by the many postponements and delays, 
now at last lost all control of himself, denounced the change of position as a runaway flight, and declared that he would not abandon his post, but stay there with his company and await the onset of Mardonius. And when Pausanias came up and told him that their action had been formally voted by the Hellenes in council, Amomphoretus picked up a great stone and threw it down at the feet of Pausanias, saying that was his personal ballot for battle, and he cared not a whit for the cowardly counsels and votes of the rest. Pausanias, perplexed at the case, sent to the Athenians, who were already moving off, begging them to wait and make the march in company with him, and then began to lead the rest of his troops toward Plataea, with the idea that he would thus force Amumphoretus from his position. At this point day overtook them, and Mardonius, who did not fail to notice that the Hellenes had abandoned their encampment, with his force in full array bore down upon the Lacedaemonians, with great shouting and clamour on the part of the barbarians, who felt that there would be no real battle, but that the Hellenes had only to be snatched off as they fled and this lacked little of coming to pass. For Pausanias, on seeing the situation, though he did check his march and order every man to take post for battle, forgot, either in his rage at Amumphoretus or his confusion at the speed of the enemy, to give the signal for battle to the confederate Hellenes. For this reason they did not come to his aid at once, nor in a body, but in small detachments and strangling, after the battle was already joined. When Pausanias got no favourable omens from his sacrifices, he ordered his Lacedaemonians to sit quiet with their shields planted in front of them and to await his orders, making no attempt to repulse their enemies, while he himself went to sacrificing again. By this time the horsemen were charging upon them. Presently their missiles actually reached them, and many a Spartan was smitten. And then it was that Callicrates, said to be the fairest of the Hellenes to look upon, and the tallest man in their whole army, was shot, and, dying, said he did not grieve at death, since he had left his home to die for Hellas, but at dying without striking a single blow. Their experience was indeed a terrible one, but the restraint of the men was wonderful. They did not try to repel the enemy who were attacking them, but awaited from their god and their general the favourable instant, while they endured wounds and death at their posts. Some say that as Pausanias was sacrificing and praying, a little to one side of his line of battle, some Lydians suddenly fell upon him and rudely hurled away the sacrificial offerings, and that Pausanias and his attendants, being without weapons, smote the intruders with the sacrificial staves and goads. Wherefore to this day, in imitation of this onslaught, the ceremonies of beating the young warriors round the altar at Sparta, 
and of the procession of the Lydians which follows this, are duly celebrated as rites. Then, in distress at this state of affairs, while the seer slew victim after victim, Pausanias turned his face, all tears, towards the Hierium, and, with hands uplifted, prayed Cithieronian Hera and the other gods of the Plataean land, that, if it was not the lot of the Hellenes to be victorious, they might at least do great deeds before they fell, and show to a certainty that their enemies had marched out against men who were brave, and who knew how to fight. While Pausanias was thus calling on the gods, right in the midst of his prayers the sacrifices showed themselves propitious, and the seer announced victory. Word was at once passed all along the line to set themselves in motion against the enemy, and the phalanx suddenly had the look of a fierce beast bristling up to defend itself. The barbarians then got assurance that their contest was to be with men who would fight to the death. Therefore they made a rampart of their wicker targets, and shot their arrows into the ranks of the Lacedaemonians. These, however, kept their shields closely locked together as they advanced, fell upon their foemen, tore away their wicker targets, and then smiting the Persians in face and breast with their long spears, they slew many, who nevertheless did great deeds of courage before they fell. For they grasped the long spears with their naked hands, fractured them for the most part, and then took to short-range fighting with a will, plying their daggers and scimitars, tearing away their enemies' shields, and locking them in close embrace, and so they held out a long time. The Athenians, meanwhile, were quietly awaiting the Lacedaemonians, but when the shouts of those engaged in battle fell loud upon their ears, and there came, as they say, a messenger from Pausanias telling them what was happening, they set out with speed to aid him. However, as they were advancing through the plain to his aid, the Medizing Hellenes bore down upon them. Then Aristides, to begin with, when he saw them, went far forward and shouted to them, invoking the gods of Hellas that they refrain from battle and oppose not nor hinder those who were bearing aid to men standing in the van of danger for the sake of Hellas. But as soon as he saw that they paid no heed to him and were arrayed for battle, then he turned aside from rendering aid where he had proposed and engaged with these, though they were about fifty thousand in number. But the greater part of them at once gave way and withdrew, especially as the barbarians had also retired, and the battle is said to have been fought chiefly with the Thebans, whose foremost and most influential men were at that time very eagerly medizing, and carried with them the multitude, not of choice, but at the bidding of the few. The contest thus begun in two places, the Lacedaemonians were first to repulse the Persians. 
Mardonius was slain by a man of Sparta named Arimnestus, who crushed his head with a stone, even as was foretold him by the oracle in the shrine of Amphiarius. Thither he had sent a Lydian man, and a Carian besides, to the oracle of Trophonius. This latter the prophet actually addressed in the Carian tongue. But the Lydian, on lying down in the precinct of Amphiarius, dreamed that an attendant of the gods stood by his side and bade him be gone, and on his refusal hurled a great stone upon his head, insomuch that he died from the blow. So ran the man's dream. These things are so reported. Furthermore, the Lacedaemonians shut the flying Persians up in their wooden stockade. Shortly after this it was that the Athenians routed the Thebans, after slaying three hundred, their most eminent leaders, in the actual battle. After the rout was effected, and more might have been slain, there came a messenger to the Athenians, telling them that the barbarian force was shut up and besieged in their stockade. So they suffered the Hellenes in front of them to make good their escape, while they themselves marched to the stockade. They brought welcome aid to the Lacedaemonians, who were altogether inexperienced and helpless in storming walled places, and captured the camp with great slaughter of the enemy. Out of three hundred thousand, only forty thousand, it is said, made their escape with Artabazus. Of those who contended in behalf of Hellas, there fell in all one thousand three hundred and sixty. Of these fifty-two were Athenians, all of the Eantid tribe, according to Clydemus, which made the bravest contest, for which reason the Eantids used to sacrifice regularly to the Sphragitic nymphs the sacrifice ordained by the Pythian oracle for the victory, receiving the expenses, therefore, from the public funds. Ninety-one were Lacedaemonians, and sixteen were men of Tegea. Astonishing, therefore, is the statement of Herodotus, where he says that these one hundred and fifty-nine represented the only Hellenes who engaged the enemy, and that not one of the rest did so. Surely the total number of those who fell, as well as the monuments erected over them, testifies that the success was a common one. Besides, had the men of three cities only made the contest, while the rest sat idly by, the altar would not have been inscribed as it was. Here did the Hellenes, flushed with a victory granted by Ares, over the routed Persians, together for Hellas delivered, build them an altar of Zeus, Zeus as deliverer known. This battle was fought on the fourth of the month Boedromion, as the Athenians reckon time, but according to the Boeotian calendar, on the twenty-seventh of the month Panemus, the day when, down to the present time, the Hellenic council assembles in Plataea, and the Plataeans sacrifice to Zeus the deliverer for the victory. We must not wonder at the apparent discrepancy between these dates, since even now that astronomy is a more exact science, 
different peoples have different beginnings and endings for their months. After this, the Athenians would not grant the Spartans the highest meed of valour, nor allow them to erect a general trophy, and the cause of the Hellenes had certainly gone at once to destruction from their armed contention, had not Aristides, by abundant exhortation and admonition, checked his fellow generals, especially Leocrates and Myronides, and persuaded them to submit the case to the Hellenes for decision. Thereupon, in the council of the Hellenes, Theogiton the Megarian said that the Mede of valour must be given to some third city, unless they desired the confusion of a civil war. At this point Cleocritus the Corinthian rose to speak. Every one thought he would demand the Mede of valour for the Corinthians, since Corinth was held in greatest estimation after Sparta and Athens. But to the astonishment and delight of all, he made a proposition in behalf of the Plataeans, and counselled to take away contention by giving them the meed of valour, since at their honour neither claimant could take offence. To this proposal Aristides was first to agree on behalf of the Athenians, then Pausanias on behalf of the Lacedaemonians. Thus reconciled, they chose out eighty talents of the booty for the Plataeans, with which they rebuilt the sanctuary of Athena, and set up the shrine, and adorned the temple with frescoes, which continue in perfect condition to the present day. Then the Lacedaemonians set up a trophy on their own account, and the Athenians also for themselves. When they consulted the oracle regarding the sacrifice to be made, the Pythian god made answer that they were to erect an altar of Zeus the Deliverer, but were not to sacrifice upon it until they had extinguished the fire throughout the land, which he said had been polluted by the barbarians, and kindled it fresh and pure from the public hearth at Delphi. Accordingly the commanders of the Hellenes went about straightway and compelled all who were using fire to extinguish it while Euchidas, who promised to bring the sacred fire with all conceivable speed, went from Plataea to Delphi. There he purified his person by sprinkling himself with holy water, and crowned himself with laurel. Then he took from the altar the sacred fire, and started to run back to Plataea. He reached the place before the sun had set accomplishing thus a thousand furlongs in one and the same day. He greeted his countrymen, handed them the sacred fire, and straightway fell down, and after a little expired. In admiration of him the Plataeans gave him burial in the sanctuary of Artemis Euclia, and inscribed upon his tomb this tetrameter verse. Euchidas, to Pytho running, came back here the selfsame day. Now Euclia is regarded by most as Artemis, and is so addressed. But some say she was a daughter of Heracles, and of that Myrto who was daughter of Menetius, and sister of Patroclus, and that, dying in virginity, 
she received divine honours among the Boeotians and Locrians. For she has an altar and an image built in every marketplace, and receives preliminary sacrifices from would-be brides and bridegrooms. End of Aristides, Part 3 Recording by Graham Redmond